0: Okay, so spoilers ahead, but uh, do you remember the movie The Sixth Sense from M. Night Shyamalan? So if you aren't familiar with it, I'm about to spoil the movie for you, but you know, I'm not going to feel bad about it because it did come out in 1999. So really, you should have seen it by now because it's a super famous movie. Even if you haven't seen it, you, you already know about it. But if you happen to not be familiar... I'm about to spoil the movie, but, you know, in that movie, it stars Bruce Willis, who plays this psychologist, right, who has to help this little boy who claims that he can see ghosts. So that's the 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 plot of the movie. And we all know that famous line where the kid says, I see dead people. And because it's an M. Night Shyamalan movie, you know, he's known for having the these crazy... Uh, twists and turns and big surprise endings in his movies. And and this is really the one, the sixth sense that that put him on the map. But because this is one of his movies, you know, it has to have this crazy twist ending. And the crazy twist ending is that Bruce Willis's character is actually a ghost. He's been dead for pretty much the entire movie. And, you know, with films like that, after you've seen it, one time, or someone tells you about it, you just can't go back. You're always going to know the ending. You're never not going to know the ending to a movie like that. And if you rewatch the movie with the prior knowledge of the ending, with the prior knowledge that Bruce Willis is a ghost, you, you start picking up on all these clues scattered throughout the film And all these different things begin to make sense in light of the prior knowledge of how it ends. And I bring this movie up because it gives us kind of an idea of how the disciples and the New Testament writers approach their scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, what we as Christians call the Old Testament. Uh, The writers of the New Testament, you know, they also had a, a twist. They had a surprise ending. And their surprise ending was that Jesus died, right? That, that was a surprise for them. Even though we see passages where Jesus, uh, you know, he talks to the disciples about it, even telling them plainly in some passages. But nevertheless, it was a huge deal. It was a big surprise. It was a big twist ending for the disciples. Because typically for someone claiming to be the Messiah in that day, For a Jew living around the first century, which, you know, Jesus lived during the first century AD, you know, if if they died, that meant that they were a fake messiah, that they they were a false messiah. And if you read, like, the writings of Josephus, the Jewish historian Josephus, there were quite a number of people claiming to be the messiah who led these different movements, you know, before during and right after the time of Jesus. And, you know, they all died as well. And all of their movements died along with them, without exception. And we've talked briefly on the podcast about what the expectations of Messiah were going to be for the Jewish people at the time. And, you know, it certainly was not being executed by the Romans. That was like the telltale sign that Jesus lost. He's not the guy. But you know that, that was the first surprise twist. but here's another surprise twist. Jesus doesn't stay dead. And that that's the whole basis for our faith, right? as Christians that Jesus doesn't stay dead, He's resurrected. He's been resurrected. He's been brought back to life. And one of the proofs of this is that the movement he started, it didn't die with him. But, because he was still alive, the Jesus movement exploded. And for the disciples, for Paul, for the gospel writers, the, the paradigm of the world has now changed. It's shifted because the Messiah has come. And even though he came in an unexpected way and did an unexpected thing, you know the victory of the resurrection was indisputable; it was undeniable for them, even to the point of of their own death. But the point I want to emphasize here is that uh, once the paradigm has shifted, and the world the world is different now because of Jesus. That's the point I want to make here. The world. Is different because of Jesus. And now these New Testament writers have to look at their scriptures to explain what just happened and what the ramifications of what just happened are. And their starting point is Christ. And now their whole view of the Old Testament is oriented to Christ, to the person of Jesus. And their view of scripture is now filtered through this new Christological lens. And this is what we spent the bulk of the last episode talking about. But, but these New Testament writers, sometimes they have to employ a Midrashic interpretation of the text in order to connect it with Christ. And again, Midrash, just to give you the broad definition, There are narrower ways to talk about this and and more technical details. But for our purposes here, I'm just painting in broad strokes, so to speak. But but Midrash was this ancient Jewish method of handling an old text. Well, I I guess all texts are old, but an ancient Jewish method of handling their scriptures in a creative way so that it speaks to a contemporary situation. And that may sound a little strange to modern western ears because it's not really the way we do bible interpretation in, you know, the current year, but it's a very it was a very common way of interpreting the scriptures in the time of antiquity. And we saw one example of this this sort of um uh, midrashic Way of how the New Testament interprets the Old in Matthew two fifteen, where the Holy Family escapes to Egypt to flee uh, the infanticide being ordered by Herod, and Matthew says that that happened to fulfill what the prophet spoke out of Egypt. I called my son, and if you remember the previous episode, that's referring to Hosea eleven one and I don't want to spend too much time recapping here, but but we saw how the, the context of Hosea actually wasn't a prophecy in terms of prediction. Hosea is not predicting anything. In fact, Hosea is doing the opposite of predicting. Hosea is reflecting. He's reflecting back on the Exodus and God bringing out his son. The nation of Israel is referred to as God's son in the Old Testament, but Hosea is reflecting on God bringing out the children of Israel from Egypt so what does Matthew mean when he says Jesus fulfilled what the prophet said that's sort of the the million dollar question here well I don't I don't think Matthew's saying that Hosea was predicting anything but I do think that Matthew does mean that Jesus fulfills Hosea Matthew's saying what's happening with Jesus is like what happened to Israel. And Matthew is saying that Jesus is embodying the story of Israel. Jesus embodies the entire Abrahamic Mosaic tradition of the Jewish people. And he's very concerned about this. Matthew's audience that he's writing to is primarily Jewish. and. He wants to show them that that Jesus is the apex of Israel's story. He's the whole point. I mean, look at the Sermon on the Mount. You know, who else gave a Sermon on a Mount, right? Moses. That's most of the book of Deuteronomy is Moses giving a Sermon on the Mount. And in Jesus's Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, Matthew records Jesus saying, like, don't think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. You know, I'm not here to abolish any of that, but I'm here to fulfill that. And Jesus, as he's teaching on the sermon in the Sermon on the Mount, he says things like you've heard X and Y in the law, but I say to you this and Matthew's purpose in recording all of that, you know, he wants to say, look, guys, don't you see Jesus is the new and improved Moses? He isn't Moses. But he's like Moses. He's Moses 2.0. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one we've been expecting. Because again, and I know I'm I'm repeating myself here, but for the New Testament writers, Jesus is the apex of Israel's story. He embodies Israel's story. He's the whole point. And Paul says as much too in Romans 10.4. And actually, I want to use this verse to introduce a term to you. Uh, Romans 10.4 As I'm looking it up um, here in the English Standard Version says, uh, sorry, Bible app. Sometimes I I press the wrong thing, but (laughs) all right. Romans 10.4 in the English Standard Version says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes the NIV reads it this way. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Okay, that word there that gets translated as a culmination or end is this Greek word telos. And it means the purpose or the aim or the principal end. So Jesus is the purpose of the law. He's the telos. And here's the term I want to introduce to you. But Paul and, and Matthew and all of these New Testament writers, they employ a Christotelic hermeneutic to the scriptures. And I know that's a, a big theological term, but don't be scared of it. I'm, I'm going to break it down for you. Um, if you don't know what a hermeneutic is, a hermeneutic or hermeneutics is just the, the theory or the method of interpreting the scriptures. and. Christotelic, well, that's Christ, obviously, and then sort of combined with that Greek word telos, the point, the aim, the purpose. So a Christotelic hermeneutic is just reading the scriptures in such a way where you see Christ as the ultimate purpose. And this is how the New Testament writers approach their scriptures. They see Christ as the ultimate purpose. And it's, on, it's an already held belief. It's a prior conviction. And like I said in the last episode, for Paul, for Peter, for the whole lot of them, you know, they believe in, in the Messiah. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that he's come. And because of that, the whole paradigm has shifted. And now they have to look to their scriptures to explain and make sense of what just happened, and not only to make sense of what just happened, but to explain the implications of what just happened, and explained what is happening now. And sometimes they need to use a midrashic, creative, Christotelic handling of the text to make it speak to what they're seeing. And We can actually just continue right here in Romans 4, actually, uh, to see another example of this. Now, again, this isn't too much of a nuanced study. Uh, There are plenty of weeds we could get into on this subject. There's been no shortage of academic research and, and discourse on all this stuff. And the details can be interesting. They can be very interesting. But What I'm offering here is just the top floor of the the skyscraper view, so to speak. But I think, you know, the big picture can sort of just suffice for our purposes here in this podcast. But but here in Romans 10, we just read verse 4 and picking it back up in verse 5. And I'm going to continue reading in the English Standard Version. But Paul says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. here Paul is sort of, he's pitting two parts of Torah against each other almost. And he does this to explain the relationship between law and faith and righteousness or right standing with God. And Paul says that that there's this righteousness that is based on law. And that's a reference to Leviticus 18.5. You know, those who do the law have to live by the law. But there's also a righteousness based on faith. And for that, he starts uh, to cite from Deuteronomy 30. And he kind of plays off Leviticus 18.5 from Deuteronomy 30. He, He plays those off of each other. And well, okay, actually, let's just go back and read what those actual verses in Deuteronomy say, because... That'll give us a better idea of what Paul is doing here. And in Deuteronomy 30, just to back up and give us some context here, we're getting to the end of of the book. And like I mentioned earlier, Deuteronomy is basically just Moses giving these uh, speeches or these sermons on the mountain. And here towards the end of the book, he's charging the children of Israel with keeping the law, keeping the commandments that he's given to them from God. And so let's read here in verse 11 from Deuteronomy 30, and this this is where Paul begins his citation from Moses. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Okay, so Moses is saying, look, this law that you've been given, you can do it. Okay, it's not too hard for you to do. You can keep this because it's not like it's in heaven where you have to send someone up there to get it for you. And it's not like it's across the ocean where you have to like take a boat to go get it. No, it's present. It's accessible. It's in your heart and it's in your mouth. It's near to you. See, I have set before you today life and death, good and evil. On and on it goes there in Deuteronomy 30. Now, Paul takes all of that and he does something very interesting. Paul says that the righteousness of faith says... Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Okay, this is a pretty major shift from what it's saying in Deuteronomy. Paul's taking this Old Testament passage and he's orienting, orientating, orienting, orientating. <laughs> You know what I mean? Paul's taking this Old Testament passage and he's making it speak to Jesus. He's giving it a, a Christotelic twist. And you can see how Paul sort of swaps out the law and puts it in the periphery. And he replaces it with Christ. And he feels the freedom to do that. It's a very Christotelic, very Midrashic way of looking at this text from Deuteronomy, because frankly, on its own, Deuteronomy 30 doesn't really have anything to do with Jesus. Paul's making it speak to Jesus, because again, and I know I'm repeating myself over and over, but this is important that you get it, Christ is the telos. He's the purpose. I mean, look at how Paul even changes the language, and in Deuteronomy, Moses says, who will ascend into heaven to get the law for us, or who will go across the sea, but but Paul says, Who will ascend into heaven to bring Christ down? Or who will descend into the abyss? So Paul changes that from this, you know, vertical, horizontal, uh, what's the word? This vertical, horizontal metaphor. And he, he changes it to this vertical up, vertical down metaphor, right? That, that's a major difference. That isn't in the Hebrew version or the Greek version of the Old Testament. That's just Paul. He's handling the scripture in a very creative way to make it speak to a contemporary, a contemporary situation, the, the Jesus situation. And for Paul, he's well within his right to do so. Because that's what faithful people do, and that's what faithful people have been doing for centuries. And on top of that, now that the Messiah has come, the scriptures, they serve Messiah. The Messiah doesn't serve them. And that's foundational for Paul. Paul, not that Paul didn't you know affirm the in- inspired word of God, the you know the, the- theonoustos, um, you know, Paul, Paul's the one that says that the word of God is inspired in second Timothy. So of course, he believes in the inspiration of scripture. And actually, I mispronounced that Greek word. It's, uh, I think it's theopneustos, not theonustos, theopneustos, if I remember correctly. So I just wanted to clarify that. But, you know, Paul's the one who says that scripture is inspired, the Old Testament scriptures are inspired. So of course, he believes that the Hebrew Bible that he has is the word of God. But even more foundational than that belief is the belief that Jesus is the Messiah and that he has come and that he has fulfilled the scriptures. Paul starts with Christ and then he goes from there. And it's this combination of of a Christological conviction blended with the ancient Jewish way of handling the scriptures that leads Paul to take the liberties that he does and reorient salvation and righteousness away from law and toward Christ. And so now, the implications of all this is that in the same way that the law was given to be acted upon in Deuteronomy, well, this new message, this word of faith message, is ready to be acted upon now the law demanded a response back then, and now the message of right standing with God through faith in Christ, well, it demands a response as well. And moreover, just like the law was near and accessible for the children of Israel, well, in light of Christ's incarnation and his resurrection, the availability of righteousness by faith is now near and accessible. No one has to go up to heaven to bring Christ down. You know, who did that? God did that already. No one has to descend down into the abyss to bring Christ up. God already raised Christ from the dead. Okay, so since we're in Romans, let's uh, look at another example here. We're talking about how the Bible interprets itself, specifically how the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. And um, let's look at another example here in Romans. Just flip one chapter back from Romans 10. So uh, we're going to Romans 9. You know, um, part of Paul's purpose in Romans is to show that Jews and Gentiles actually share a similar situation. Paul wants to show that actually we're all kind of in the same boat together as Jews and Gentiles and here in Romans 9 Paul starts off the chapter sort of lamenting the failure of his fellow Jews to accept the gospel to accept Jesus as Messiah because these are God's covenant people and you know to them belongs the adoption Paul writes the old testament uses the metaphor of adoption to explain God's relationship with the nation of Israel and to them belong the covenants, the law, you know, the Jews, they were the ones who worshiped at God's temple and all of these different things. And now Paul has to wrestle with um, the implications of the fulfillment of God's promises among the Gentiles, along with Israel's unbelief in the fulfillment of God's promises. And Paul's argument here in Romans 9, like I said, is to show that we're all in the same boat together and there's no one group that has a higher status than the other, but we're all on an equal playing field as Jews and Gentiles because God has brought in the Gentiles to fully share in this Abrahamic tradition of faith and promise as Gentiles. Okay, they don't have to follow. The same dietary restrictions, or they don't have to become circumcised to fully enjoy the promises of this covenant. And that was a pretty tough pill to swallow for the Jewish people. And we can see this in other places too, uh, judging by the, the responses that Paul got in Galatians 3 comes to mind uh, particularly. But here in Romans 9, you know, that's the argument Paul is making, and, and he does it by quoting from the Old Testament, right? Shocker, shocker, I know. Paul quotes from the Old Testament. But here in verse 6 of Romans 9, Paul says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named this means that it is not the it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring okay so here paul is rejecting the notion that god's word has failed because israel as a nation ethnic israel had a negative response to the fulfillment of god's promises through christ right they by and large, have rejected Jesus as Messiah, and, you know, Paul is rejecting the notion that that's a failure on the part of God's word. And why isn't this a failure? Well, Paul's assertion is that true membership in God's covenant community is actually based on faith, not on, you know, physical ancestry. And he goes back to Genesis to make this appeal. See, so it was very, uh, it was very common for Jews to appeal to their Abrahamic ancestry as sort of a symbol for their special relationship to God as His chosen people. But Paul says, "Look, you know, Abraham had other sons. Okay, just because Ishmael was descended from Abraham, you know, what does that prove? Nothing, right? That, that proves nothing because the child of promise." Was Isaac the promise was fulfilled through Isaac, the promise was bared by Isaac, and and even then, Isaac had two sons, right, Jacob and Esau, and verse uh, verse thirteen of Romans nine, Paul cites uh, Malachi as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So God chose Jacob to bear the promise over Esau. God chose Isaac over Ishmael, and God chose Jacob over Esau, even though Ishmael and Esau are both descendants of Abraham. So what Paul is getting at here is that the fulfillment of promise has less to do with ethnicity or, or genealogy, and is more to do with God's choice. And, you know, Romans 9, Romans 9 is like one of the heavy hitter passages in Paul that uh, Calvinists like to use to show how God predestines and predetermines some to self, some to salvation and uh, some to wrath, you know vessels made for glory and, and vessels made for destruction, that whole thing. But I really don't see that here. I mean I mean I'm not a Calvinist anyway, but I think that Paul's main thrust when it comes to the doctrine of election and God's sovereignty here, Is that if God chooses to call the Gentiles into his covenant community as Gentiles and to bear his promise along with the Jewish people, well, he's well within his sovereign right to do so. And not only would God be well within his rights to do that, it's actually been part of his plan all along. And this is where Paul turns to Hosea. To help make the case. So let me read uh, verses 25 and 26 of Romans 9 here. It says, As indeed he says in Hosea, God, so this is what God says in Hosea those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Okay, so that's, um, that's Hosea 2.23 and Hosea 1.10 uh, there, respectively. And again, this is another example of this um, this Midrashic creative way that the New Testament sometimes uses as it handles the Old Testament scriptures in order to make it speak to a current situation. And this is because the context of Hosea Hosea 2.23 and Hosea 1.10, the context of those verses are speaking of God's restoration coming to ethnic Israel. And if you go back, you read the first three chapters of Hosea, you can see that. So here we have, again, Paul kind of forcing a different context, a present day context onto this old text. Because again, if you read Hosea you see that the Israelites had embraced all of these wicked and pagan practices. They were worshiping the gods of other nations, and they had broken their covenant with God, with Yahweh. And this is the whole issue pretty much in the prophetic literature, you know, Hosea and Ezekiel and all the rest of them, that it, the fidelity or the infidelity of, of, of Israel Excuse me, let me just restart that sentence. The fidelity or infidelity of Israel in relationship to God, you know, that's pretty much what is in view in the prophetic literature. And because of the nation of Israel's infidelity or their unfaithfulness, because they've broken their covenant with God, they no longer have claim to the promises of blessing and they will be exiled for a time, even though ultimately. They will one day be reconciled back to God. They will be restored back to their land. So Paul takes that. uh, Paul takes the context of these verses in Hosea, and he puts his own twist on it by applying it to this Gentile situation. Okay, he interprets Hosea like he uses Deuteronomy in chapter 10 in light of the current events. And I believe Paul does this, well, one, for One, because again, that's just how faithful people interpret scripture in the world of antiquity. But I believe that he cites Hosea in his argument, not because he sees his own interpretation as the only interpretation far from it. I don't think Paul's denying the historical context or the historical interpretation of Hosea. But I think he puts this twist on the scripture Because he sees it as analogous, or he sees it like a parallel to what the Gentiles are experiencing. Okay? Um, Let me quote from F.F. Bruce here, talking about this. F.F. Bruce writes What Paul does here is to take this promise, which referred to a situation within the frontiers of the chosen people, and extract from it a principle of divine action which in his day was reproducing itself on a worldwide scale. In large measure, through Paul's own apostolic ministry, great numbers of Gentiles who had never been the people of God and had no claim on his covenant mercy were coming to be enrolled among his people and to be recipients of his mercy. Okay, so let me try to to put it in a... Understandable nutshell here for you. Paul is saying, Look, the word of God has not failed. Okay, God's promise is less concerned with ethnic heritage than it is with faith and a believing heart. Okay, Paul says, Look at Israel. Israel's ethnicity, their genealogy, their Abrahamic heritage, it couldn't keep them from being separated from God, separated from covenant, and exiled into a foreign land. Okay, this this people who are bearing the promise are suffering from the same problem that everybody else is suffering from, their ethnicity, their heritage. It couldn't keep them from being separated from covenant and being exiled into a foreign land. But in spite of all that, or despite all of that, You know, God still loves his people, even though they're unfaithful. God still loves his unfaithful people, too. And he will fully restore them one day. And Paul sees that. And like I said, he sees it as analogous or like a parallel to the Gentile situation, because guess what? Who else was separated from the covenant with God? Who else besides Israel, besides the Israelites, were separated from the covenant of God. Well the pagans, the Gentiles, but unlike Israel, they they were always separated from the covenant of God. And you can see this trage- uh, you can see this trajectory, excuse me, that Paul is on here. You know, this traject this trajectory, I don't know why I'm having such a problem with that word, but you know here's here's what Paul's saying. If God can save and restore one group of people, If God can save and restore unfaithful Israel who broke the covenant and separated themselves from covenant and were put into exile, if God can bring them back, well, God can save this other group who were separated from him as well. If the unfaithful Israelites who were called not my people could again be called God's people, well, these Gentiles who are also not God's people it could be read into that as well So if God wants to save the pagan nations and bring them into his covenant community as Gentiles without having to convert and adopt the Jewish law and customs he can do that He's well within his sovereign his sovereign right to do that and for Paul you know it couldn't be any clearer that God was actively doing just that and that that that's a pretty, that's pretty forceful reading and interpretation of Hosea here. But again, it's not because Paul didn't understand or deny the meaning of Hosea in Hosea's own context, but he's looking at the scriptures through this Christotelic lens. And he combines that with a Midrashic creative reading of the text to make it speak to the present day. And it might not be a modern logic, but it fits right in with the world of Jewish antiquity, and it's not at all unusual. All right, one more example, because, you know, what the heck? Why not? Um, I mentioned Galatians 3 earlier, so let's just take a brief look at that. I know this episode is going a little bit long, so I'll, I'll try to make this last example brief, but I think this will be another good illustration of this Christotelic way the New Testament looks at the Old Testament. And here in Galatians 3, Paul is making the same kinds of arguments that he would later go on to make in Romans 9. Um, Galatians uh, comes before Romans chronologically. Uh, But he's making the same kind of arguments here. The true children of Abraham aren't necessarily the ones who can trace their genealogy back to Father Abraham. But the real seed of Abraham are the ones who are of faith because Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul cites that from Genesis uh, Genesis 15. And that's, um, that's actually one of Paul's go-tos. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. One of his go-to uh, verses whenever he cites the Old Testament. But Uh, So here, um, the Gentiles are included into this covenant, again, as Gentiles. Okay, that's very important. In in Galatians uh, 3, the whole book of Galatians, actually, Paul's trying to beat back the influence of this group of people called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers, they were this group of uh, Jewish believers in Jesus, a very influential group, apparently who were telling the Galatians that, okay, maybe maybe their faith in Christ got them into the covenant, but because they're Gentiles, you know, even though they got through the door, they now have to adopt this strict adherence to the law to maintain the covenant now. A lot of people think that the Galatians were giving into this. They were giving into the Judaizers because... They felt like if they adopted a stricter adherence to the Jewish law, it would give them an air of legitimacy within the community of believers that they currently didn't have. But Paul says no. Paul says no, that's not the way it works. Paul says that it's faith and faith in Messiah, faith in Jesus alone, that legitimizes you as members of God's covenant community. So again, we're in Galatians 3 here. Uh, we'll pick this up in verse 7, Galatians 3, 7. It says, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Uh, Notice how Paul personifies uh, scripture there. Scripture is the one that preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. But, you know, if you go back and read Genesis, it's God saying that. So Paul personifies the scripture, identifies, you know, the scripture with God. So, I mean, that just speaks to his high view of scripture and inspiration. But anyway, uh, verse nine. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All right, so in this passage, Paul is assigning greater importance to a revelation that isn't law. He's assigning greater importance to God's promise to Abraham because God's promise to Abraham, unlike the law, it has implications for the whole world. In you shall all the nations be blessed. And Paul will reiterate this in verse 15. He writes in verse 15 of Galatians 3, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring. Paul is subordinating the Sinai covenant to the Abrahamic covenant. Not that Paul is disparaging the law because remember Paul is a Jew and Paul you know he's actually a pharisee of Pharisees. You know he he talks over in Romans 7 if you go read Romans 7 about how much he loves the law and the law is a wonderful thing to Paul. But guess what the more significant thing for our salvation through faith more than the law is this Abrahamic covenant, because that covenant has implications for all the nations of the earth. So why the law? A logical question, right? And Paul asks this in verse 19. He says, why then the law? And then he answers himself. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made." And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Okay, so this could be argued a couple of ways here. One way is this, and this is a common way, but the law was given to define sin. The law was given so that we would know what a transgression is. A lot of theologians. To go that route, but another common way to uh, to explain this would be to say that the law was given because of what Adam and Eve did in the garden, right? They rebelled. The law was given because of their transgressions, because of their sins, and because of their sins. Well, now we all sin, and I mean that's an obvious point, right there. We all sin. I think we can all agree on that. And I think you can argue that whole trajectory pretty well, but you know, there's a third way to look at this. And I personally, I personally tend to go this way, that the law being given because of transgressions means that it was given to impede transgressions. It was given to be a barrier against sin. In other words, you know, sin, transgressions, was a state of being that the law was given in, uh, as a response to. Okay, and I think, and, and not just me, but some different scholars that I like to read after, um, but I think that Paul is kind of angling for a dual purpose of the law here. One, it'll impede sin, and it'll preserve a righteous nation, or at least a righteous remnant of a nation through which the Messiah can come and undo all this wickedness that we see in the world. Meantime, in their struggle with the law and sin, it will also show the people that they have a need for grace and for a salvation and for a righteousness that comes by faith. So, I think that's sort of the dual purpose of the law that Paul's angling for. On one hand, it's given to impede sin and to preserve a righteous people through which the messiah can come and fix all of this and two it'll show those people and it show all people really that we all have the need for grace and for a salvation and for a righteousness that comes by faith i think those are the purposes of the law now notice something interesting here paul said that the law was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Okay, why would Paul say that? The law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Why would Paul say that? And why would he feel the need to clarify that God is one? And this is actually going to reference and call back to the very first episode of this podcast where I talked about uh, he who rides the clouds and God Godhead language in the Old Testament and specifically this uh, the appearance of this second Yahweh figure in certain passages, the angel of the Lord, that whole thing. So this is going to call back to that, but But typically, most Christian teachers and theologians will say that this intermediary Paul is referring to is Moses. And I mean, I can see it, but my problem with that is if it's Moses, why does Paul feel the need to quote the Shema? Why does he have to clarify that God is one? Well, This is my submission for you, but I think the intermediary was the angel of the Lord or the angel of Yahweh. Going back to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 9 this time, where Moses talks about receiving the law. Um, Let me look it up here. This is Deuteronomy 9, 9 and 10. When I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. Okay, um, focus in on verse 10 here. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of Of God, this is anthropomorphic language here. Anthropomorphic language, okay. It requires it requires the physical presence of Yahweh on the mountain, writing with the finger. Anthropomorphic language. It requires the physical presence of Yahweh on the mountain, and this would make sense. This would make sense why Paul would feel the need to clarify that God is one if the second Yahweh the angel of the Lord was there writing with his finger essentially producing and giving the law to Moses who then takes it back to the people and if you remember that uh, that first episode that very first episode of the podcast you know it it was this this whole two powers in in heaven thing but You know, you you can see how that would lend itself to a, a Christotelic reading because like we talked about in that first episode, Jesus identifies himself with the second power in heaven figure. He identifies himself as the angel of Yahweh and therefore with Yahweh himself, God is one. Jesus, how many times did Jesus say, I am one with the father? my father and i are one and and this is why this is why paul can knock the law off of its p- pedestal so to speak and replace it with jesus because jesus himself was the giver of the law why why is jesus the telos the telos why is he the aim why why is jesus the ultimate purpose why is he the end of the law why is jesus the only one who could fulfill it Because he's the one who gave it in the first place. And now because Messiah has come, because the Telos has come, because Jesus fulfilled the law, because Jesus is the apex, because he embodies the story of Israel, all of that, all of this means that Jesus, he's the offspring. He's the one who bears the promise. The promise went from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, to the nation of Israel, the law was given to impede sin so that there would always be a faithful, righteous people to keep bearing that promise. And now this promise has been fully realized, and this promise has been actualized in Messiah, in Jesus, in the person of Jesus Christ. So now faith has come, Paul writes. Faith in Messiah, faith in Christ, That is what justifies us and gives us right standing with God and brings us into this Abrahamic tradition of old so that we as Gentiles can also become heirs according to the promise. All right. Well, that's a lot. Um, Thank you so much for uh, sticking with me. If, if you've made it this far in the episode, uh, one more thing, one more really quick thing before we wrap this up, going back to the, uh, the road to Emmaus passage in Luke that I read in the last episode, you know, Jesus said that everything that was written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms, it all had to be fulfilled. And this is also something I mentioned in the the previous episode, this old saying of how Jesus is in the Old Testament uh, concealed, but he's in the New Testament revealed. Well, I, I don't think that means that Jesus is in the Old Testament, like he's playing hide and go seek or something. But, but I think, that to to read the scripture Christotelically means to read it in light of Jesus and in light of Christ. I think this is what Matthew does with Hosea. This is what Paul does with Deuteronomy and Hosea. They're they're looking at their scriptures in light of Christ. It's not about forcing Jesus into passages where he isn't there in the sense of This is what the Old Testament authors meant to do when they were writing it. Remember, Hosea 11.1, you know, that's talking about the children of Israel coming out of Egypt in the Exodus. Not really anything to do with Jesus. I don't think, you know, Hosea is thinking Messiah when he writes out of Egypt, I have called my son. Yet Matthew says Jesus fulfills that. And I know I'm beating the dead horse here, and I keep repeating myself, but repetition is the mother of all learning, as they say. Matthew's starting point is Christ. Paul's starting point is Christ. And they go from there, and they see all of these scriptures, all of these things that happened in Israel's story, this whole Abrahamic and Mosaic tradition that they're a part of, they see it all as speaking to as analogous to Christ. Why again because Christ is the telos. He is he's the whole point. Christ is the whole point. And this has implications for how we view our Bible, it has implications for how we read the Bible, it has implications for how we think about Bible prophecy. It has implications for how we we view the the doctrine of the inspiration of scripture you know and again this doesn't mean we have to deny the inspiration of scripture we don't have to deny the spirit's inspiration of of scripture i affirm that 100% paul affirmed it 100% you know both both testaments old and new they're both inspired the issue here is we can't just ignore how the bible functions how the New Testament authors look at and interpret the Old Testament in, the, in these very creative ways. We can't just ignore that. For the modern mind, the temptation is to view that kind of treatment as, you know, very strange, maybe even dangerous, um, you know, to handle an inspired text that way. But this way of reading the scriptures, that that's just what they did. And I think it just speaks to the divine human partnership in the writing of scripture. This is the Bible. It, it's a divine book, but it's also a very human book. It's like Jesus, Jesus, the incarnation of Christ. Jesus was fully God and fully man. Well, the Bible in the same way is a divine and human book. And I think if you asked Paul, Or if you asked another New Testament writer, if the scriptures were inspired, obviously, I I think they would give an emphatic yes. They'd say, yes, obviously the Bible, and, and for them meaning their Bible, the Old Testament, yes, obviously it's the inspired word of God. But they might say too that, you know, God is also inspiring this moment, this present moment that we're living in. And God is inspiring what is happening in terms of you know these Gentiles coming into the promise, coming into the covenant community. So now we're tasked to interpret the scriptures in light of all of that. And and how they do that, you know, going through these examples that we've gone through in the la- in this episode, in the last episode, I think it's just. It's very beautiful theology, I think. It's beautiful, beautiful theology. Now, okay, let me clarify one more thing. This does not give us permission in the modern day, in the current year, to just run wild with the text and come up with whatever creative interpretations we want because, oh, that's what Paul did. I mean, just no, okay? (laughs) Emphatically, no. We're still guided by the context of the Bible. We're still we're guided by the context of the overall narrative of the Bible itself. Remember, the canon is closed. Okay. And there's there's no more inspired writing in terms of canonical scripture. So the, the writing or the, the canon is closed, okay? The Bible is a completed work. We're not adding adding anything more to it so we're guided by the context of the entire bible so you know don't think that because you know the new testament authors use this midrashic creative way to interpret their scriptures that that gives us license to come up with all kinds of crazy creative interpretations that that suit our own you know crazy notions it it just doesn't right that is uh, not not the point. Okay, the scriptures serve Christ and not us. Again, the whole goal of this podcast is to help you think well about the scriptures. And you know, this is a big, big topic. How the Bible interprets itself. You know, this doctrine of inspiration, intertestamental exegesis, uh, Christotelic hermeneutics, whatever you want to call it. This is a massive, massive, massive topic. And we've spent two episodes on it. We're going to spend more episodes on it at some point because, you know, it deserves to be talked about. It it deserves to be explored more than I think we explore it now by and large in the church. So uh, again, thank you again for listening to the Bible School podcast to this episode. I'm going to shut up before I keep rambling on here, but I hope you have a blessed rest of your day. Tune in next time. Thanks again.